Hello and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Magrazan and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today I'm joined by Justice John T. Broderick Jr., who currently serves as a Senior Director of External Affairs at Dartmouth Hitchcock Health. Justice Broderick was a member of the New Hampshire Supreme Court from 1995 to 2010 and Chief Justice from 2003 to 2010. During his last seven years as Chief Justice, he focused on court reform in an effort to make the justice system in New Hampshire more accessible, affordable, and understandable for morbid citizens. He was the first Chief Justice in New Hampshire's history to appoint a Citizens Commission on the state courts for citizens to examine court functions and see how they could be improved to better serve those who needed them. After stepping down as Chief Justice, he became the Dean of the Law School at the University of New Hampshire where he also founded the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Policy. Before entering public service, Justice Broderick was a civil trial lawyer in private practice for more than 20 years, and formerly served as president for both the New Hampshire Bar Association and the New Hampshire Trial Lawyers Association. Justice Broderick is at Dartmouth College to give a public lecture titled Changing the Conversation Around Mental Health, It's Way Past Time, based on his experiences dealing with his eldest son's struggles with alcohol use tied to mental health. Justice Broderick, we're excited to have you with us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Awesome. So for those unfamiliar um, with your family's stories and how you became so in- involved in-, in mental health advocacy, could you briefly describe how your experiences have informed your advocacy work? Sure. Um, I have two sons, and my oldest son, when he was 13, um, began to have mental health issues. And because I'm a baby boomer, and no one ever talked about it when I was growing up, we didn't see it for what it was. And my son thought it was just him, and that he would somehow grow beyond it. And he didn't. And we didn't see it for what it was. And when we finally saw it, uh, we saw alcohol. He was drinking. He got a bachelor's degree. He got a master's degree. He's really smart and talented. He's the best read person I've ever known. And a self-taught musician and a great artist. But when it reached the point where his life seemed to be spiraling out of control because of alcohol, uh, we took the advice of the alcohol experts and he went to alcohol rehab, which didn't take. And then they said to my wife and I, you're gonna have to put your son out literally out of your house, because if you don't, he's going to die drinking in your house. And up to that point, by the way, no friend, no neighbor, no doctor, no one, and sadly not my wife and I, ever said, I wonder if he could have a mental health problem. Seems obvious to me now, but it didn't then, or to anyone else, it seemed. And so my wife and I, loving him, it seemed like the only answer was to put him out, and so we did that. And I hope you never find yourself there. We finally brought him home after three weeks living on the street, living in his car. And when he came home, he was drinking just as much. And I think looking back, he was scared to death that we'd put him out again, and he knew he couldn't go out again. And so one night when he was drinking, he assaulted me. I went to the intensive care unit at Manchester Hospital. My master's educated, funny, decent son ended up in the state prison. It's hard to even describe what that was like. I can't imagine for him or my wife. But through that ordeal, sadly, we learned what his problems were. 
He served three years in the prison, uh, and they treated his mental health problems here with counseling and medication. He has not had a drop of alcohol in 15 years. And through that experience, um, I ended up doing what I've been doing now for five years. It was someone of genius beyond mine, certainly, about the five most common signs of mental illness. What are they? I wished I had known them when he was young. And he said to me many times, Dad, I wished I had one of these rack cards with the five signs on it because I would have found myself there and I would have known it wasn't just me. And so he's been very proud of what I've been doing. I've been speaking all around New England. I've spoken to 90,000 young people, grades six through 12. And they have so educated me about mental health. I'm not a clinician. Uh, and in some ways, that's a disadvantage. In some ways, it's an opportunity because I don't have any preconceived notions. And so what brings me to the right fellow Senate tonight is that campaign and, and talking about mental health, trying to normalize it and demythologize it. But that's how it all happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a young person, I appreciate 100% that there are people like you who are able to share their own experiences with learning about mental health. And, and passing that process on to other people, um, and young people included. I mean, I guess when, as, as you were going, you and your family were going through these experiences, what part of you, what do you, to what extent was the learning curve um, needed on behalf of the experts you were consulting versus, you know, your individual, your household, I guess, like, what, what did the expert advice had to play or the expert advice that wasn't really in tune with you know, and mental health, how, how did that play a role in your own decision making? And We learned about my son's mental health problems in the state prison. Mm -hmm. Not we want to find out about them, by the way, but thank God. And they said he had really serious depression, panic attacks, that feeling we're about to die, and anxiety that were off the charts, and he drank. When he was there, he got counseling and he took medication at night and in the morning. And he said, Dad, it's so changed my whole life. Mm -hmm. and, and so I know now, A, what mental health looks like in many cases, where I never would have. B, I know that treatment works in most cases. And C, I know we don't have a mental health system in the United States. Uh, what I have learned the last several years from young people younger than both of you, by the way. But sometimes I speak at colleges. And young people are, your generation, while not perfect, is the least judgmental generation in the history of the United States. You should be proud of that. And so kids open up to me when I open up to them about my own family. And so I have heard so many mental health stories. And I'm really impatient to change the culture and the conversation. I'm impatient for us to have a mental health system in the United States, it's 2022. The way we have treated mental illness in America has been immoral in my view. Uh, we can treat cancer, we can treat AIDS, we can treat diabetes. We can treat mental illness if we choose to, but we don't have the number of people in it, we don't incentivize people to go into mental health. 
we don't reimburse them at the same rates as we reimburse other uh, health professionals. Uh, and we're not committed to it as we were committed to breast cancer, to AIDS, and we need to be. Mm -hmm. And I am really counting on young people because if somebody else was going to fix it, it would have been fixed. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to put pressure on young people, but I so admire young people. And I admire your decency and your impatience as it relates to fundamental fairness mm -hmm. and health equity. And this is an issue of fundamental fairness. Yeah. And it's an understanding that mental health problems affect really smart people, really good people, and really young people. And we can do something about it if mm -hmm. we want. Yeah, absolutely. That's my mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what, what can young people, what can the support systems of young people, what can any of us you know, do to kind of, like you said, start to address those health inequities that we see that are very systemic? You know, you know what I'd like? It's, it's, it's like the Civil Rights Movement. I'm old enough to remember the Civil Rights Movement, and it didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. When Rosa Parks didn't go to the back of the bus, it didn't solve the problem. When they had the first lunch counter sit in, it didn't mean there were no more issues. It took years to fix it. And it's not perfect now, but believe me, it's a lot better than it was when I was your age. And what I want young people to do is not accept the mythology that my generation did when it came to mental health, which is it's not widespread, uh, it's often hopeless. None of that is true, by the way. One in five adolescents in the United States has a mental health issue. One in five adults. If you do the math, that's 40 or 50 million Americans. I spoke to the head of the mental health program at Emory, He's the Rosalind Carter Chair of Mental Health at Emory University in Atlanta. I spoke to him last year. He's a psychiatrist since late 50s, very capable. And I asked him a simple question, I thought. Doctor, how would you rate the mental health system, not the people doing mental health work, the system in America, March 2021, one being not very good and 10 being the gold standard, and he said, John, I can't answer that. And I said, can I ask you why? He said, oh, sure. We don't have a mental health system, John, in the United States. Mm -hmm. We have fragments. We have a patchwork. If you live on either coast and you have money and can afford private pay, you'll eventually get help. Everybody else, good luck. Half the young people that I talk to, half the young people who hug me at schools are getting help nowhere because I asked them, and the national stats will prove that. Uh, the number of young people affected by mental health problems is higher than it has ever been, and it's not their fault, by the way. But it's our fault for not acknowledging it. And not everyone with a mental health problem, with anxiety or depression, needs in-depth, lifelong counseling. Often they need to know that it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to pretend you're okay. And when we can reach that point and help those who need us, we'll change the downward spiral. But unless and until young people insist on it, it won't happen or it would have happened by now. Mm -hmm. I need your voices, I need your impatience. Uh, I need you to ask the tough questions. And then as you get older, I need you to take hold of the wheel 
and change it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think the, the pamphlets you just you gave us here are, I think, maybe the start of that, of people understanding and recognizing on their own that they're not okay and that's, that's all right. Like, that I'm just to, 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 to explain for our viewers what's on this, um, to know the, fine, the five signs of whether you're feeling okay, whether you feel like yourself, whether you're feeling agitated, whether you feel withdrawn, whether you're caring for yourself, and whether you're feeling hopeless. Um, what, do you, what do you hope that this will do as, as the first step for how people understand? You know what I hope it'll growing? do? I hope. Let me give you an example. I spoke to 100 doctors and nurses at a hospital in Manchester about two years ago before COVID. And it seemed odd that this layman was talking to doctors and nurses about mental health, but it didn't seem odd to them, apparently. And so I had forgotten to bring these little rat cards with the five emoticon faces with the five signs. They're not diagnostic, but it's hard to have a mental health problem without showing several of those. Anyway, I forgot to bring the cards. The doctor wrote me and said, could you drop them off? Because you were going to bring them. And so the next day I dropped them off. Two days later, he wrote me an email, this 42-year-old doctor. He said, once I told the people who heard your talk that you had dropped the cards off, they were gone in 15 minutes. These are physicians and nurses. That should tell you something. And uh, he said, what I did, he said, I took one of the cards home. He said, I have two daughters, 13 and 11. And I realized I had never spoken to my own children about mental health which was very common when I was growing up. Believe me, nobody talked about mm -hmm. it. So I said, I brought one of these rat cards home, and after dinner, my wife and I, with the girls, we held up one of the rat cards, and I said, girls, I want to talk to you about this. And he said, my 13-year-old daughter started laughing. She said, has Judge Broderick been to the hospital? He came to my eighth grade <laughs> class. And he said, we laughed about that, but I reviewed that card, and I said, girls, have you ever feel like this? should talk to mom and dad. You haven't done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just a health issue, like if it hurts your ankle. Or if you have a friend who's showing those signs and you're worried about them, talk to mom and dad. We're happy to talk to their parents. No one's going to get in trouble. Learning the basics. It's like we learned the basics of strokes and heart attacks. Mm -hmm. And now we call 911. Yeah. You'd say, sit down, I'll get you a glass of water. They'd be dead in a half hour. Now we've learned to call someone who knows more than you do. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do. And eventually people will say, your daughter, your son, where are you getting help? You're not getting help? You mm -hmm. can't find help? I can't find help either. Why is that? And change will happen. Mm -hmm. Unless and until we learn about it, normalize it, and talk about it, we'll never address it. That's why today, 2022, we don't have a mental health system in America. Mm -hmm because nobody really wants to go there. And maybe it won't surprise either one of you, but doctors, lawyers, high-achieving people, the type A personality, they often have mental health problems at a higher rate than most people in everyday life because they're trying to do as much, if not more, than they really can do. And they are afraid to talk about it for fear that you will think less of them, that they lose their mm -hmm. job. We lose 48,000 Americans every year to suicide. The rate of suicide for people from ages 10 to 24, kind of the wonder years, increased 56% from 2007 to 2017. That's not just happening for no reason. Mm 
Uh, I didn't realize that we lose a veteran to suicide every 90 minutes every day of the year. We don't talk about that much, that's kind of awkward. I didn't realize that more police officers and first responders die by suicide every year than every single cause in the line of duty combined. We don't talk about that much either. But mostly I worry about people who are suffering from depression and anxiety and either can't find help or are too ashamed or afraid to reach out for help. And we have taught them that because they know that's not something that's going to help them in the broader world they live in. And particularly if you're high achieving, you don't want to acknowledge that imperfection. It's just mm -hmm. a health issue. Mm -hmm. I always say to kids, if you had a bad ankle, you'd speak up. So if you're depressed or unduly sad, or say something. Mm -hmm. And then we all have to be mature enough to say, well, let me help you. Mm -hmm. You don't seem like yourself. I see it time after time after time in schools. I've hugged a number of kids as young as the sixth grade who have told me they either want to kill themselves or have tried to kill themselves. It's, it's not right, and it's not necessary. But it won't change until young people say, why is that? Why is that? Mm -hmm. That's where I'm coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know there are a lot of young people, and, and maybe maybe not just young people, but people in general, right, who can tell that they aren't feeling like themselves, um, but maybe that they can't bring those concerns or worries to their to to what who they can traditionally consider their support system for whatever reason Either they feel uncomfortable or they don't think that that support system will support them through this particular sure. you know issue. How what what can we be doing or what what can our institutions be doing to bring resources externally to those people that currently or may not or maybe should exist? Well, one of the things we need to do, and we don't have it now, we do not have an integrated delivery system for healthcare in America. What we need is primary care, and either in that same office as a primary care physician, a trained social worker or a nurse practitioner, or immediate association with those folks. So you come and see me and you say, I've been really sad and lonely, I might in the old days have said, well, you should probably see someone. I don't know anyone, but you should look someone up. Or here, call this person, maybe they can take you. And that's kind of discourages you from acting. But if I said, you know, Bob or Joanne's down the hall, they're gonna come in and they're gonna bring you down to their office and gonna talk. Uh, that's a good start. We should have universal screening for mental health starting at a young age, not to diagnose, but just to be aware of what's happening. Schools should play a pivotal role in that because that's where kids go. Uh, we need to incentivize people to go into mental health care. We have 1.4 million lawyers in America. I'm a lawyer, and I think that's too many, but just saying. We have 675,000 CPAs. We have 28,000 psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. Think about that. We don't have enough nurse practitioners, we don't have enough psychiatric social workers, we don't have enough mental health counselors because we don't pay them, we don't reimburse them. If I were a psychiatrist and you're a neurologist, your rate of reimbursement is gonna be better than mine. Mm -hmm. 
We have legislation that says there's parity between mental health and physical health. That's what it says. That's not how it works. And so if you have a, a bad knee, you're going to get physical therapy, you're going to see doctors, you're going to get better. And you don't have to worry about who's paying for it. Mm -hmm. If you're 15 years old or 18 years old and you have a mental health problem, who do you call? When do you get in? Who pays for that and for how long? Exactly, yeah. So that's what needs to change. And it won't change until people say, we insist on it. I'm older than you guys by multiples. And when I was your age, people didn't talk about cancer. My mother used to whisper the word cancer. Seems silly now. But a lot of people weren't as brave as my mother. They would say he or she has the C word. You didn't tell your employer, your neighbors, or you didn't tell anyone. Isn't that silly? Uh, nobody talked about breast cancer. Are you kidding me? When I was young, I'm sure there were a lot of women that died in my town at 42, and people said, well, she died young. She did, but she died of breast cancer. It was like that with AIDS, mm -hmm. HIV. Oh my God, who were those horrible people? They were stigmatized and ostracized. And then Magic Johnson of the Lakers, we all love Magic. If you live in New England, you love Larry Bird more, but we love Magic, and we didn't want to lose him. But when he announced in Los Angeles, 1991, that he had HIV, everyone said he's going to die. He's still very much alive, by the way, mm -hmm. because we have moved forward on that. It wasn't always that way. So I know change is possible, but it doesn't happen because you think it should. It happens because you demand that it happens. And all those older than you had that opportunity and they didn't seize it. And I'm guilty of that too. But I see it now. And so I want young people to pick up that slack, not because that's fair to you, but because everyone older than you had that opportunity and they didn't take it. Mm -hmm. I need your voices. I need your impatience. It's, it's a civil rights issue in the United States. It's a health equity issue in the United States. And I know from my own family's journey how important it is and how success is possible. But not if we don't access it, not if we discourage you from talking about it. It's just not right at so many levels. Absolutely. Um, I want to thank you, just Roderick, for your time here with us and, and as well as for your work, um, which I know is benefiting my, our community and a lot of my peers. And I, I think it's very valuable and important. That thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. So, well, thank you to our listeners uh, for being here. Um, thanks for tuning in. And until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Havlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.